Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Let's get a Bible opened up to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 34. That is where we're going to be for the entirety of the lesson this evening. Just going to work this text in Genesis chapter 34 and even over into the first few verses of Genesis chapter 35. This is part of our Bible reading this week as we continue to read the, the story of Scripture. We're reading through the, the narrative portions of the Bible, and I do hope that you are sticking with that reading. We are getting ready to begin week number seven this week, and my vow to you earlier this year was that I would do more preaching uh, that's related to the Bible reading schedule to try to encourage and to motivate us in that direction. And tonight I'm going to preach from a chapter... That if you had laid out all of the Old Testament possibilities of where Josh might preach from this year, this would have probably been at the bottom of your list as to which of those chapters I would choose to preach from. But I'm going to do that momentarily in Genesis chapter 34. Great to see everybody tonight. So glad that you're here. Great to have visitors and guests among us. We really appreciate your presence uh, with us this evening. Hope that you've had a good afternoon. It's been just a really nice afternoon. This was kind of afternoon that I would have really liked to have taken uh, a nap in. And so if you needed a nap, I hope you already got that out of the way so that you right now can focus on the Word of God because that's what this part of our worship is all about. In Genesis chapter 34, read with me if you will, just verse number 1 to set the stage. In Genesis 34 and verse 1, we're told there, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. I must tell you that I am not a big fan of Jacob. And the more that I read over the course of the last few weeks about Jacob, the less of a fan of him I am becoming. He is in many ways ornery. He is very, very troubling. All too often he lives up to his name, which means trickster or deceiver. And that is especially the case when we come here to Genesis chapter 34 as there's just a number of places that are very troubling for me as I look at Jacob and as I look at his conduct. Because there's going to be a number of times as we're reading here in Genesis chapter 34 where we're going to be compelled to stop and to say, Oh my! Oh my! Not that! And in all of that that's going on, Jacob is not going to shine. In fact, this week in our reading, we will see some signs where it seems like Jacob is maybe turning the corner a little bit. When we read Genesis chapter 32, Jacob wrestles with God. And he comes to understand some things about the Lord. And that seems very faith-building for him. In chapter 33, he reconciles with his estranged brother Esau. And that seems like a good step in the right direction. But right here in chapter 34, we find Jacob just sliding right back into his old way. I just don't much care for the portrait of Jacob that is painted for us in these middle chapters of Genesis. But what we do get here, as we watch Jacob and as we observe him and his family, is we're going to get a pretty powerful lesson on how to live amongst pagan people. Chapter 34 is incredibly instructive for us in helping us to figure out what it means to live amongst a society that does not care about and does not respect God. And that is where Jacob finds himself here. He has settled amongst the people of Canaan, which means he is surrounded by idol worshipers. He is surrounded by people who are capable of just about anything. And in this chapter, we will painfully see that demonstrated. Jacob and his family, they roadmap for us what it is like for God's people to live in a pagan land. It's going to show us what not to do. And this chapter is going to show us what we ought to do. 
when we find ourselves surrounded by people who do not care about God. And I would suspect, I would suspect that that describes the very predicament that every single person in this room finds ourselves in on a daily basis. When we are at work, when we are at school, when we are in virtually any environment in this world, we find ourselves thrust right into the middle of a pagan, ungodly, worldly culture. Which means that all of us ought to be very interested in what Genesis 34 is going to teach us about living amongst the pagans. Let's read a little bit here. Verse 1 has already told us that Jacob's daughter, actually his only daughter Dinah, she goes out to see, to visit the women of the land. And as she goes, verse 2... Genesis 34, verse 2, that Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, he saw her, and he seized her, and lay with her, and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. The very first thing that I think Genesis 34 shows us is that God's people live in a very, very dangerous world. Since people around God's people do not share the same value system as as we do, then what that oftentimes means is that means that God's people can be hurt. As we look here at Dinah, there is some question there in verse 1 about what exactly is going on there, what she's doing. It seems innocent when it says she's going to see the women of the land, but that expression you should know. Some think that may seem to indicate some impropriety on Dinah's part. And at the very least to me, it seems that whatever it is that she was doing as she went to see the women of the land, it seems to indicate to me that she is acting naively here. And she is maybe acting even very carelessly. Please notice how the strong language that's used there in verse number 2. How it says here that Shechem, he sees her. He lay with her. And then notice he humiliated her. Later on in the next verse, we're going to read about how he defiled her. The biblical verdict on what Shechem has done here, it is very, very clear. He has sexually assaulted her. He has raped her. Verse 5 makes that even more clear. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Now, Now already right here, here's one of those spots where I look at Jacob and I look at his reaction here, and something about this just doesn't feel right. This just does not seem like the proper, natural reaction to the news that your daughter has been sexually assaulted. You know, in chapter 37, when Jacob finds out and he learns his boys tell him that his son Joseph has been devoured by a wild animal, Jacob very famously in that chapter, he rends his garments and he puts sackcloth on and he goes into this huge conniption just mourning and wailing out loud. But here, in chapter 34... When his daughter is assaulted like this, doesn't seem like he's all that wrought up about it, is he? Somebody would maybe say, well, well, maybe he's a little reluctant to show some emotion here because the text seems to indicate that he's outnumbered. His sons are out in the field and maybe Jacob's a little bit timid of, of doing some kind of reaction that might cause his Canaanite neighbors to react violently with him. Well, maybe that's so. But it's hard for me not to wonder, what's the deal here? 
What's going on? Why doesn't Jacob seem to show concern for his daughter and what's happened to her? Is this maybe because Dinah is the daughter of Leah? And Leah is the wife that Jacob never really loved. Jacob really only loved Rachel. And maybe he's showing some of that here even with the daughter of Leah. That he just didn't really care for her. Not entirely sure about that. Maybe that's some conjecture on my part. But it does seem to raise a red flag. Verse 6 continues on. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, he went out to Jacob to speak with him about this matter. And so the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done this outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Look at how verse 7 just emphasizes the wrongness of what has happened to Dinah. That this was an outrageous thing. One translation says this was a disgraceful thing. Such a thing must not be done, the text says. The anger, the indignance of the brothers when they hear this news, I think is entirely appropriate here. Their sister has been sinned against. She has been defiled in a terrible and awful way. They ought to be upset about that. But verse 8 says that Hamor... Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Hold on here. Where's the apology? Where's some remorse? Where is this sense of, hey, this was really wrong what my son has done to your daughter. I am so sorry. I'm just gravely sorry for what he has done. Nope. None of that. Instead, let's just cut straight to some commercial negotiations here. Let's talk about how it will be economically favorable for you and for us if we strike up this agreement with each other. Let's just not make a big deal about what happened over there. Let's just all get along and just act like everything is fine. In fact, Shechem, the son, the one who committed this terrible atrocity, he decides he's going to speak up for himself now. Maybe he'll express some some grief and some sorrow about what he's done. Verse 11, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and as great of a gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me this young woman to be my wife. You know, it's a little presumptuous, don't you think? For this guy to be talking about marriage and for all the things that go along with marriage when there is seemingly no contrition, there's no sorrow, there's no shame, there's no regret, no acknowledgement of what he has done. It's just, give me what I want. I want her, give her to me. What Genesis 34 is showing us is that Jacob's family is in the midst of great danger. And why is that? Because the people of that land, they live a wildly different kind of lifestyle. They see no problem with the way that Shechem has acted. They see no problem with coming and just demanding, give this girl to us, that's what we want, and so you now give it to us. To these pagans, women are just objects to be treated however we choose to. 
Women are practically viewed as merchandise to be bought and to be sold. There's no understanding here that the sexual relationship, that it is to be between two consenting married people, and that sexual assault is wrong and it is evil. No. No, in this society apparently, you just do whatever you want. You do it to whoever you want, whenever you want, even forcibly. These people are different. These people have a different value system, if they even have a value system at all. These people are different morally. They are not governed by God and by His Word. And that is exactly what makes it so dangerous for God's people to be living in their midst. And I say to you this evening that that is still true today. All of these centuries later, that truth has not changed. We still live in dangerous times and we live in a dangerous place because we are surrounded by pagans on every side. Maybe nothing illustrates that better and more poignantly for us than what happened just six short weeks ago when a gunman walked into the West Freeway Church of Christ in Fort Worth, Texas and he opened fire, killing two and critically wounding another. What kind of world do we live in? Where people can be so calloused and so depraved and so beyond feeling that they can walk into a place where Christians have assembled to peacefully worship God and those people can then be assaulted and they can be maimed and even be killed. What kind of world do we live in? Where we have to actually stop and think about and organize and have to set up some kind of a security team for the church. Why do we have to live in fear when the thought of a strange vehicle circling our parking lot while we're in the middle of worship, that arrests us. It causes us all to kind of brace for action. We maybe break out into a sweat. What might happen here? What kind of world do we live in where there is such blatant disregard for the sanctity of human life that people would brutally and violently take the lives of the innocent and endanger countless others? I'll tell you what kind of world does that. It is a world that is dominated by godless, pagan people who care nothing for God. They have no respect for His Word. And as a result of that, God's people are beset by danger on every single side. And I'm going to say to you this evening that the answer to that is not for us to stick our heads in the sand and act like it's not so. The answer to that is not to sit around and pontificate and reminisce about all the good old days. I remember the good old days where we could just leave the doors unlocked. We didn't have to think about none of that. The answer to that is not to tell ourselves, oh, we, well, we live in the Bible Belt here. People around here, they still generally have good morals and we don't really have to worry about that around here. No, no, and no. When we foolishly or naively ignore the danger that our world poses to our lives... What we are doing is we are setting ourselves up to be hurt just like Dinah was hurt, who did not seem to understand the reality of the harsh world in which she lived. The wise man says in Proverbs 22 and verse 33 that the prudent sees danger and hides himself. But the simple, the naive, they go on and they suffer for it. What we need to do is we need to act with prudence, with wisdom, with caution, especially in a day and time when our society is drifting further and further and further away from God. We need to wake up 
and recognize that we live in a dangerous world. Well, what's the reaction to that reality? Okay, we live in a dangerous world. I'll acknowledge that. I'll, I'll give that some credence. That's absolutely so. How do we react to that reality? Well, how did God's people react to that reality in Genesis chapter 34? Well, look at verse 13. Then the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor. They answered them deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And this is exactly one of those places where we need to stop and we need to say, Oh my, oh my, the brothers acted deceitfully. That word deceitfully has actually been used several times already if you've been reading in Genesis. Because that Hebrew word there is actually part of Jacob's name. It is that word that means trickster or deceiver. And now we are seeing that the apple does not fall far from the tree, does it? Because Jacob's sons decide, we're just going to act like the world. If this is how the pagan world around us acts, then that's what we're going to do. And what that says to me is truth number two. And that is that God's people sometimes do compromise and they end up acting like the pagan world around them. In fact, watch exactly how those boys act like their pagan neighbors. Verse 14, they end up saying to them, here's what they say to Shechem and to Hamor and these men. They say to them, well, we cannot do this thing. We can't enter into this agreement where we're going to intermarry and all of this stuff. We can't agree to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. Hey, we'll all just be one big happy family. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we're going to take our daughters, and we will be gone. Now, it appears here that Dinah, at least at this present moment, that she maybe is still in Shechem's possession, that they still have her. And so the brothers are kind of kind of making a maybe not so subtle thread of saying, hey, if you all don't agree to these terms, then we're going to come and get her and we're going to get out of here. Verse 18 now. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and they spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition, though, will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. Every male among us must be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? Let's agree with them and they will dwell with us. Notice how... Shechem and Hamor, they present the case to all of the other men a little bit differently here. There's no mention here about, about Dinah, no mention here about, about wanting to get married or any of that. No, they want to present this to the rest of the men as, think, think of how favorable this is going to be for us. Think about how we'll be able to engage in trade with these Hebrew people. Think about how that's going to benefit our bottom line. Hey, l- let's agree with this. Let's agree to their proposition and to their stipulations. Let's, let's just go ahead and do this circumcision thing and get that over with. And man, things will be great between us. Verse 24. And all who went out the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. I don't know about you, but there's just something kind of ominous 
when I read that verse. There's just this foreboding tone when I read that verse because of what happens next. Verse 25, on the third day, those men who had been circumcised, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, they took their swords and they came against the city while it felt secure and they killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Oh my. You need to understand that there is nothing in all of the Bible that would ever condone or justify the behavior of these boys. What happened to their sister was awful. There's no doubt about that. But there is nothing that they would ever do here that's going to justify the all-out slaughter and massacre that these boys ended up perpetrating. In fact, this is so terrible that at the end of Jacob's life in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is going to reference this event as an illustration of being people who are just sometimes out of control, people who are not doing what is right. He recognizes later on that what his boys did here was not right. Maybe in some ways the most awful part of what these boys did here is this deception and how it all centers on circumcision. Think about that. They are abusing the holy sign of the covenant between God and His people. That's what circumcision was. They used that to put these Canaanite men in a vulnerable position so that they could then murder all of them. These boys, they have acted deceitfully. They have done exactly like their father. They used trickery to pull one over on the Canaanites. They have acted deceitfully in order to get their way. What a disaster this is. We've gone from sexual assault in the first couple of verses now to mass murder. Jacob's children answer the value system of their pagan world by becoming just like that world. They are acting like pagans. And unfortunately, their daddy Jacob doesn't seem to help all that much. Look at the very next verse, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and to Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is maybe the low point in the life of Jacob. Because notice in verse 30 how Jacob is really only concerned about Jacob. There's no conversation here at all about, boys, this is, this is terrible. This is an affront to God what you have done here. We need to live differently. We're not called to live like them. We're called to live differently and holy and set apart. We can't begin to draw these pagans to the one true God of heaven if we're out there acting like them, murdering and stealing and doing all this sort of stuff. There's no concern here on Jacob's part about this is sin. This is wrong. You need to repent. This is going to damage our relationship with God, let alone our relationship with others. There's not any of that here. Just count how many times in that one little verse, how many times Jacob make reference to himself. Look at verse 30 again. You have brought trouble 
on me. By making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. Both I and my household. It is, after all, all about Jacob, don't you know? Where exactly is Jacob's faith in the promises of God? Those promises that God had first given to Abraham and then repeated them to Isaac. And he had just repeated them to Jacob here. That he would take care of him. And he would end up causing him to be the father of many nations. Jacob's gone backwards now. He's gone back to cowardice. He's only worried about self. He seems totally uninterested in setting right this wrong. He seems totally uninterested in rebuking his sons for doing this awful deed and sinning against God. No, boys, you've just made life hard for me. What were you thinking? I I, want to say right here that it is very easy for God's people to compromise their distinctiveness and to become worldly like the pagans that are all around us. And I want to say to you this evening that, yes, that happened to them, but that can happen to us just as easily as it happened to Jacob and his family. Can I suggest to you something that I think would serve as a powerful preventative to us compromising what we know is right and becoming like the pagan world around us? Can I offer you something that I think really helps to put some distance between us In the world. I believe what we need more of is we need to speak more candidly and more frankly about the differences in our conduct, in our standard of living, and that of the world. And in particular, those kinds of frank conversations need to be happening more with our children. We need to be ready to frame out that conversation even when it comes to some of those more difficult and more sensitive subjects. In fact, I should expect that when somebody opened up their Bible this evening to Genesis chapter 34, when I called that out at the beginning of the lesson, and you started kind of looking there, what's Genesis 34 about? Let me see if I can remember what this chapter is. Maybe your Bible even has the heading at the top of the chapter like mine does, and it's got that title, The Defiling of Dinah. I'm guessing there probably were some folks who got a cold chill down their spine. There probably were some parents who were thinking to themselves, oh my, we're not talking about this, are we? Are we actually going to talk about what happens in this chapter? This is not G-rated material here. In fact, I am even sure that on the car ride home tonight, some child who was engrossed in coloring during the lesson time and really wasn't paying any attention to this sermon, they're going to chime in from the back seat and they're going to repeat something that maybe they just in passing heard me say. They're going to say, hey dad, what's a prostitute? Or, hey, Ma, what does it mean when it says they defiled her? Sometimes we get a little bit embarrassed by the things that the Bible talks about. You know, the Bible deals very candidly with things like adultery, fornication, homosexuality, mass murder, drunkenness, rape, and yes, even prostitution. And sometimes what happens is, is when we come across those passages, is we want to, we want to kind of play that down a little bit. Or maybe what we hope is we hope that the preacher will just kind of mumble something under his breath and gloss over that and just move right along to the next thing. Can I just ask you, how can we possibly expect, how can we expect to maintain our separateness, our distinctiveness from the world if we don't ever talk about exactly how and where we are separate 
Would we rather those subjects be discussed on the school bus than to be discussed in the Sunday school classroom with Christians? Would you rather your child be treated to this world's definition and this world's viewpoint on all of those sensitive subjects? Or would you rather your child hear those things, hear what God has to say about those things from the pulpit and directly from the Scriptures themselves? When these subjects come up in the Bible, and they do, what that does is that gives mom and dad, it gives mom and dad the first crack. It gives mom and dad the first opportunity maybe on the car ride home from church tonight, for example, to talk very carefully and to talk very honestly about what is right and what is wrong and what makes the difference there. It's not that difficult to say, as you look at verse 31, that a prostitute is a woman who takes money to pretend like she is married to a man even though she is not. And I understand that when we're talking about that or anything else, that we need to be age appropriate. I get that. And I understand as well that some of these subjects need to be handled with greater sensitivity than others. I get that too. But God's Word discusses these things. God's Word speaks of them. And God's Word discusses them so that we might learn from that. Romans 15 verse 4. So that we can then share and impart and teach our children about right and wrong. So that we then in turn can be different, separate, distinct from this world. But I'll say again, if we never say anything about these matters because we're too embarrassed... Do we somehow imagine that the world is just going to be similarly silent too? Oh, you guys don't want to say anything about that? Okay, well, we'll not say anything about that either. Do we really think that's how that's going to happen? Our children hear and they see the world sermon on these things every day, all the time. Are we going to just inadvertently teach our kids that the Bible says nothing about these things while the world says everything about these things? How can we ever expect to be different? If we don't talk about them. And so chapter 34 concludes with really just a complete breakdown of Jacob's home. These pagans out here, they acted like pagans are expected to act like. And then Jacob's sons looked at that and they said, Ha, we'll do you one better. We'll out-pagan those pagans. And you know what? They did. And it's ugly. And it's disgusting. And it's disheartening. Which leads us to look a little bit here in the opening verses of chapter 35. These first four or five verses of chapter 35 really help to complete the story. We need to get those. In chapter 35, beginning in verse 1, God then said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. That's a call back to Genesis chapter 28. When Jacob had made this vow, your God is taking care of me, and so I'm going to come back here and I'm going to worship Him and I'm going to do these things. And God's now saying, I'm holding you to your word on that. Verse 2 now. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Wait, what? There are foreign gods? There are idols in Jacob's household? How can that possibly be? What? Maybe that explains, maybe that explains a whole lot about how Jacob's sons acted the way that they did in chapter 34, doesn't it? That there's a whole lot of paganism going on, and it's not just outside the tent, there's paganism going on inside the tent. Verse 2, 
Put away those foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Verse 4, So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Again, that's very troubling, isn't it? Why would you hide something? Well, you hide something because you have intentions of going back and retrieving it at some point, don't you? What I'd like to read there is that Jacob took the idols, he took the foreign gods, he took the rings and the golden things there, and he melted them all down, and he ground them into powder, and he just threw it to the wind. That's what I'd like that verse to say. But that doesn't happen. And that is concerning. Verse 5, though. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon all the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. You know, these boys had went in and they had massacred all of these Canaanites at Shechem. And we might be wondering, well, why didn't all the neighboring cities, all the neighboring Canaanites, why didn't they all just gang up together and say, hey, let's go and squash those guys. There's just a few of those Hebrews. Let's take them out and let's get some retribution here. The answer to why that didn't happen is, verse 5, God kept His word. God had promised Jacob all along that I'm going to be with you. I'm going to protect you. It was the promise he had made to his grandfather. It was the promise that he had made to his father. And yet now this man, Jacob, who has a very checkered past and who has a faltering faith, in my assessment, he is still being taken care of by the Almighty God of the universe. And why? Because God said that He would. That's why. God keeps His word. And what that means then is that Genesis 34 and Genesis chapter 35 is showing us that as we live amongst the pagans, what God's people need to do is we need to trust in Him and we need to do what's right. Jacob really didn't set that proper example for us, but that's what we're seeing inferred here. In fact, really verse 5 is the linchpin of the entire story. God comes through in the end. And so when we ask, how do I live in the midst of all this ungodliness? I turn on my TV and, oh, I feel like I need to bleach my eyes. I turn on the internet and there's filth and smut everywhere. I go outside and I talk to my neighbor and his mouth is just filled with with all kinds of disgusting words. And I turn around and I hear about things in the news that are so disheartening and distressing. How do I live amongst this pagan world? The answer is, do right and trust in the Lord that He's going to take care of you in the midst of all of that. That'll work. That'll work every time. Maybe sometimes part of the fears that we have about living in the midst of a godless culture are brought about because we haven't done what verse 2 says. We've not done what Jacob told his sons to do. We've not purified ourselves. It may very well be that the reason we have fears of the world in which we live is because we still have idols in our hearts. The idol of covetousness or materialism, or lust, or immorality, or selfishness, or gossip. Just as Jacob's tent outwardly, I mean, it looked good, it looked fine, it looked like it was exactly like it needed to be. We too, we can look fine outwardly. Sometimes what happens is is we need to be doing some renovations on the inside. Sin gets in the way of us trusting God. Sin gets in the way of us receiving God's blessings. 
And if you are afraid of what could happen to you out there and all the danger that exists out there, then maybe what the cure is, is you need to get right in here. Get right in the heart. The way to live amongst the pagans is not to cave in, not to compromise, and not to act like them or maybe even do worse than them. The answer is to keep trusting the Lord and let Him take care of us. Genesis chapter 34, in my estimation, it is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. And I'll say again, there's not much in this chapter that really helps to boost or improve Jacob's profile in my mind. Genesis chapter 34, in many ways, it serves as a shadow to the violence and to the ugliness that's going to be perpetrated here in just a few chapters by ten of these boys against their younger brother Joseph when they actually contemplate, they really give some serious thought to murdering him. What happens in 34 really just sets the stage for all of that. In fact, Genesis 34 probably reveals to us so much about the poor fathering that Jacob did, which in all reality probably is what led to that awful episode between his sons. But even in the midst of all of that ugliness, in the midst of all of that stuff that I feel like I need a shower after reading and discussing that chapter, in the midst of all that, we end up learning some really helpful things. We end up learning what it is that we need to do and what we need to not do whenever we are outnumbered by the ungodly. We end up learning how it is that we ought to live as we are surrounded by pagans. As we extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ, let's hinge on that last point right there. What God is calling you to do, what Jesus is calling you to do, is to put your faith and to put your trust in Him and to simply do what's right. Our God, His Son Jesus, they can be absolutely trusted in every kind of way. People will let you down. People will mislead you. People will lie to you. People will do you wrong. But the God of heaven, He'll never steer you wrong. You can trust Him. And so what that means is, is that means when God says, I want you to come to me in humility. I want you to come to me with a heart of belief and faith and trust. I want you to come confessing Jesus as God's Son. I want you to come in a spirit of repentance to make a change in your life, turn away from sin and turn to me. I want you to come and I want you to be buried with my son in the waters of baptism. I will wash away every single sin. I will adopt you into my family. I will give to you a home in heaven. Then you can count on that. If there's ever such a thing as a sure bet, it's the promises of God. Can we help somebody this evening to fully put their faith and trust in the Lord by being obedient to the gospel. We're ready to help you to become a Christian this evening if you so have that desire. It may be, brother or sister, that somewhere along the way that trust has diminished. You've not allowed your distinctiveness as one of God's people to shine through and instead you've compromised in some way. You've acted acted like the pagan world around you. Repent of that. Ask God for His forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins if we will confess them before Him. Can we pray with you and encourage you and help you to serve the Lord in a better way? We're ready to do that. Whatever your need may be, God is willing and He wants you to come. We should do that right now while we stand and while we sing.